The University of Missouri system was rocked by discord over the last few weeks. But as journalists from KBIA in Columbia can explain, these events didn't exactly come out of nowhere. We look at the future of the University of Missouri system and the city of Columbia on a special edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio in St. Louis. And in the studio in St. Louis, I have two very special guests. We have... Camille Stanley. And... Tim Lloyd, reporter. And they are the creators, co-conspirators, masterminds behind... Tandem. Tandem behind the the We Live Here podcast. And we also have uh, three guests that are using the magic of radio to come... From Columbia, Missouri, at the KBIA headquarters, um, we have, and just say all of your names at once or one by one. Uh, Rebecca Smith. I'm Ryan Famuliner. And Bram Sable Smith. We wanted to bring their our colleagues from KBIA on the show because they have been covering um, a whirlwind over the last week, but also over the last couple of months about turmoil at the University of Missouri-Columbia. And um, I just want to start off with a very simple question to all three of you, and, and you, whoever wants to answer first can answer. What was, it, what was the last week like for local reporters in Columbia dealing with a type of story like this? And what were some of the broader themes that you uncovered in your reporting? I guess I'll start uh, being the news director here. Um, as you said, this is a story that's been going on for, <clears throat> for months here at the university as um, – you know, we saw early protests under a different motto, not not concerned student 1950, but racism lives here after these um, incidents happen on campus. And um, it really grew from there uh, and progressed. Uh, the focus of the of the demonstrations changed and eventually, as, as everyone knows now, landed uh, on UM System President Tim Wolf uh, as hunger striker Jonathan Butler called for his removal and the MU football team backed that up. Um, you know, that really escalated that story to a national audience. Um, I'll let these guys talk more about um, what it was like covering it because they were actually out in the field more than I was. I know for me it was interesting uh, to see how the national media covered this because there was a lot of context left out. It was a really nuanced story because it had it has these months of background story that got left out and also, you know, a lot of historical context that got left out. You know, the fact that these kind of incidents aren't new. These kind of incidents have happened even in as recent as 2010, 2011 on campus. And there have been efforts by administrators to address these kind of things on campus, but uh, those fizzled out under this current administration. So, um, so yeah, I think watching that and trying to help see everyone trying to figure out this story was really interesting for me specifically. I think the last week is just, I mean, I think it's simple, pretty much. It was just crazy. It was kind of overwhelming and just constantly we were working on turning out stories um, that gave context and added to the story and helped elaborate what was going on and, and helped our audience understood or understand, um, yeah, like what was happening, where, where these demands had come from and, and how we got to where we were, which was, I guess, starting on Monday, the resignation of uh, former UM system president Tim Wolf. As like a local reporter covering the story, 
I agree with Ryan. It was kind of frustrating, right? We had all these national media that just flocked into town and they really didn't understand the backstory. They didn't understand how we'd gotten to the point we were at. They didn't understand um, a lot of the, yeah, like Ryan said, the complexities and the nuance to the story. So that was a little frustrating, like reading national coverage and just realizing they only knew like peripherally or I don't know, maybe like the the top, like they, you know, they like, had like the... <laughs> I don't know, the foam, right? They knew the, like the, the very surface layer of what was going on, but didn't really uh, understand or get into some of those deeper issues. Tim, I, I, think, I think we experienced something similar to yeah. that during Ferguson, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I was just thinking, uh, man, that sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Very But yeah, but Bram, continue. Um, well, I was just going to say that, you know, you understood at the same time why the national media was there covering the story, um, I mean, it was really hard even as a reporter not to get swept up in the moment and swept up in kind of just how how big of a moment this was for our local um, for our local story, for our local history, of course, but also nationally. I mean, this was a really huge thing and it, it felt that way. It just felt overwhelming. And to, to the point about Ferguson, one thing that I've uh, one thing that I, I, I've you know, this is my perspective, but having followed your guys's coverage of Ferguson and then having reported on this situation here in Columbia, one difference that I would point out between the between the um, the two situations is that in Ferguson it became this very large national story, and there were mistakes and missteps that happened, and those seemed to just continue happening. It seemed like there were uh, you know mistakes were were being addressed by more mistakes, whereas here in Columbia it seemed like the response by the university system, the response by the local police, the response even by the even by demonstrators who received criticism for their interaction, their interactions with the press, at, at every step along the way, the mis, the mistakes seemed to be addressed in a in a pretty satisfactory way, um, which prevented this story from going on. You know, obviously, it's going to continue, and the conversations will continue. But Ferguson continued to be a breaking news national story for a really long time. And, and a lot of that wasn't positive. Yeah. So this is Camille. I'm going to jump in because from our perspective, um, covering what was going on in Mizzou, clearly we weren't there. And so what Tim and I do is on our show is we, we talk about these issues of race and class and uh, power and poverty from a systems level. And so we wanted to approach what could we contribute to the dialogue from in the kind of the style that we already do. So we decided to take a look at one specific demand that Mizzou students were making that was about um, uh, black faculty wanting to increase the number of black faculty to 10%. And what we decided to do, it just started with a simple question was, okay, what does this really look like across the country? Are there any colleges across the country who have this? Um, I don't know if, if Tim will say this, but I was kind of surprised when we found out how uh, few colleges across this country are already meeting that demand or, or at that level of having 10% of their faculty be black. There's really yeah. not that many. Yeah, I mean, when we, so what we did was we took uh, US Department of Education data uh, for four year and above uh, colleges and universities that receive public um, money and just looked at their faculty numbers. And when you, start boiling it down, there's only 66 uh, schools, colleges and universities across America that can say uh, at least one in 10 professors on their campus, or I should say instructors on their campuses are are black. Now, 40 of those 
I'm sorry, not quite 40. Uh, a little, was it 30? A little over half. A little over half, sorry, um, were historically black colleges and universities, um, which obviously have a, a much higher um, percentage of African-American students and faculty. When you take those out of the mix, that only leaves 27 schools uh, in the entire United States um, that have at least one in 10 uh, black instructors uh, on their campuses. And that that seems like a remarkably low number. I think we all kind of recognize this is a, a, an issue facing higher education in this country. But um, when you look at that number, yeah, I think I, I was taken aback by that. Yeah. We're, I mean, that's a lot of information to absorb. But when you were doing your reporting, did you kind of discover information like that that kind of took you aback as well? Yeah. So there's actually one of the coincidences, you might say, is that there'd been a faculty council happening um, specifically to address race at the university in the months directly preceding, you know, what unfolded last week. And they released, it was last week was when, uh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Last week is when they released this report. And, you know, Jonathan Butler is in the videos from the report. Mike Middleton, the new system president or interim system president is in the report. And they had some pretty shocking Statistics as well. I think it's 2,000 faculty members at the University of Missouri. More than 1,500 of them identify as white. So that that leaves just 500 faculty of of color, right? Like we're not even talking about specifically black faculty, just faculty who don't identify as white, um, which is a a very small amount. And it kind of shows the overwhelmingly white majority of this campus. And, And that goes as far as even our newsroom. I mean, you look at yeah. look at who you're talking to, who, <laughs> yeah. who covered this story. We have a six-person news team, uh, and for the most part, we all identify as white, and, you know, four out of six of us identify as white men. Yeah, I mean, it's especially, you know, it's interesting, too, when you look at the entire University of Missouri system. Um, let's see. I've got the numbers here in front of me. So um, across the entire system, so all, all four campuses, uh, there are 139 black instructors. Yeah, that's for, um, you know, I think, believe the total student population is 77,000. And as a percentage, that would be a a little, I mean, just a shade over 4% of all instructors are are black across the four campuses. Uh, Median number of black instructors per campus is 38. uh, And of course, none of them meet that threshold of of 10% or more. And I think the reason we're talking about this is this was one of the demands of the protesters to um, hire more African-American faculty and staff, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And it it kind of showcases that somebody may say, "Okay, we're going to try to do that. But there are there's a long way to go to get to that point, not only at the University of Missouri, but it seems like all across the country, essentially. Yeah. Let me just jump in really quick with with another number. I'm sorry. We're throwing lots of numbers that, that always, as we all know, radio people does not make great radio. Tons of numbers. But uh, there's one in there that sticks out to me that, I mean, the University of Missouri, uh, Columbia has roughly 3% or so black fa- uh, instructors and faculty. Um, when you look at another campus, let's take Tr- Truman State, for instance, less than 1%. That was my other question, too, on that. So looking at the other c- campuses in the system, is does MU perform, Columbia campus perform better or worse on that percentage? Probably worse, uh, because it, I think UMSL's yeah. campus, I, I, we'd have to go back and look at our spreadsheet, but... Um, it's, UMSL has about 7%, um, but say um, RALA, for instance, has, I think, around 2%. Yeah. So I guess this is kind of jumps into a broader question because um, I, I 
I think I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat this. I think it jumps into a broader question that this this isn't this discussion that we're having is not a new issue on the University of Missouri Columbia campus. No. You alluded to the fact that there was an incident in 2010 where cotton balls were strewn in front of the Black Culture Center. I remember back in 2004 there was a protest in front of Jesse Hall after somebody for their, what was called the MU Student News wrote a very racially insensitive column about historically black fraternities. The, the, the University of Missouri Columbia didn't admit black students until 1950, hence the reason concerned student 1950 is called what it is. So my question is from your reporting and from talking with people, given all this context, did you get a sense that administrators had a lot of these disparities and issues on the forefront before they were kind of brought up in this national explosion? Or do you think that you know, they were kind of asleep at the switch essentially? I think, and I mentioned it briefly earlier, this is Ryan again, um, uh, Mike Middleton was actually integral in the most recent effort to address the kind of, these kinds of issues in mid-Missouri uh, at, at, at MU. He uh, was the deputy chancellor under the former chancellor, Brady Deaton, who announced he was stepping down in 2013. And uh, after the cotton ball incident, there was also an incident a year after that in 2011 when there was uh, some graffiti, uh, racist graffiti on a dorm on campus. And shortly after that, especially that graffiti incident was was pointed to as the reason for a, a new initiative they called One Mizzou, which was meant to be this diversity initiative, uh, student-led, but also having some faculty input, including Mike Middleton, um, to try to take on these serious disparity issues and things like that. Um, but you know, it was announced maybe two years before Deaton announced, uh, shortly, less, just less than two years before Deaton announced he was going to be leaving his position. And, uh, you know, M Middleton left soon after that as well. I mean, Deaton actually called it like his proudest achievement as chancellor, the creation of One Mizzou, and the thing has fizzled out. Basically, One Mizzou has become this, like, motto for the university. It's no longer an actual initiative. Um, it actually, like, officially fizzled out earlier this year. Um, we didn't see any real directives uh, that weren't reactionary, I should say, to, to student uh, demands or student um, requests uh, from the administration. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of other things going on. Uh, I saw a few good editorials on this. Uh, I think one in the Chronicle of Higher Ed that said they called this the downfall of a business-minded higher education system, um, because it, I think you know that that uh, Tim Wolf is you know came from a from a business background. Um, yeah. You know, didn't have academia experience really, other than being a student, you know, had his business degree from... Both his parents were instructors at the university, though, correct? This is true, yes. But, but personally, he'd been in the business world. And I think, uh, you know, in higher education, that's seen as uh, a good hire right now in a lot of places because you want to bring someone in who has good business sense in this very challenging climate as a higher education institution. State funding is only going to continue to get cut. Um, and I think many people, here's where I'm getting a little bit more like in the rumor mill, a lot of people saw that hire and the subsequent hire of Bowen Lofton as efforts to make those kind of necessary cuts and business business minded moves uh, to make things more viable as a university. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, again, there's no way to ever prove it, but lots of rumors around that, you know, Brady Deaton didn't leave on his own volition. He's still just like Lofton is hanging around in another position. Brady Deaton is still in town uh, doing some other things officially on the payroll for the university not quite to the magnitude that Lofton is, but... Now, yeah, and, and not to wax into too much nostalgia here, because I, I am a University of Missouri Columbia graduate. I believe Tim is Me as too, well. yeah. Uh, Camille, I think, graduated from the University of Central Michigan, so not quite Missouri not quite at this Missouri. point. 
But I, I, I remember the reign of Elson Floyd very, very vividly. He was the first African-American to be the U.M. system president. He obviously had some some successes and some pretty high-profile controversies dealing with the basketball team. So I don't want to say, like, his, his, his reign was completely spotless from his end. But I, I did read a column from Tony Messenger of the Post-Dispatch about how he had to deal with just a lot of just overt racism from everyday people toward his office. I remember him telling me back in 2006 after the Ricky Clemens episode that trash was thrown on his lawn and that he was getting hate hate mail and death threats. And I think what Messenger was trying to say was this was a situation where you did have a university-minded administrator. He came from North Carolina and, you know, he didn't really fare particularly well in this environment either. Um, did you kind of get a sense of, of that sort of backstory as well when, when reporting on this story? Yeah, I think uh, I, I saw that editorial from Tony as well and, and thought it was really well done. Um, I don't think many people went that far back in the reporting last week. Even we didn't. We tried to go back and have context in our reporting, but uh, there was so much happening day to day that I think that just got lost in the noise. Um, I think it ended up being next day, three days later reaction that people are saying, you know, and I saw great breakdowns by the Kansas City Star and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as well of even going beyond that back to the 60s and 70s, um, you know, how these events have happened over the years. And there's been efforts and failed efforts at trying to address these problems. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Did you guys see any of that when you, you were out in the field actually doing the reporting? Of, of people calling back to the past history. Yeah. Not so much of Elson Floyd, but even, even I mean, if you look at the Concerned Students 1950, if you look at their demands, you mm-hmm. look at what they're writing yep. and a lot of uh, the interviews they were giving, a lot of it had to do with the history, with the, the history of African-Americans on the campus, um, whether it's, you know, the 1950 or whether it's other student activism that happened throughout the years. It's something they were very cognizant of, including in what they were talking to and in- including in, in the conversations that they were trying to start. I mean, if you look at that list of demands, one of the demands is actually that the university meets the original uh, list of demands given by the Legion of Black Collegians back in 1969, which also addresses a lot of those same faculty issues. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've spoken with several students from Concerned Student 1950, and they do, Bram, you're right, that you're so right. They, you know, they talk about how it's not just now. I mean, now's not good, but it, it's so much bigger than that, it's so much longer than that. It's just this history um, that keeps being repeated, and it's not getting any better. Yeah, I mean, Lloyd Gaines, uh, we did. We actually did a great hour-long show with Mike Middleton last year where we talked a lot about Lloyd Gaines. I mean, he could have been one of the integral people in the civil rights movement if, had he not disappeared, which we don't even know. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he was killed or if he voluntarily disappeared amidst a lawsuit with the University of Missouri uh, about his, uh, legal, uh, his legal right to be admitted to the university. Um, and so, I mean, like, there's that. Uh, the fact that Mike Middleton is still young enough to be an interim chancellor and is the first, one of the first graduates of the law school is, is uh, an indicting fact First African-American fact graduate. Yeah, sorry. One yeah. of the first um, African-American graduates of the law school. That's, that's an indicting fact in itself that he's, that he's still that young. That's that recent, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, you know many issues. Bram's got something here, yeah. but there's many issues to sort through here for and sure. One more piece of you know recent history, but still maybe forgot or perhaps forgotten recent history is that just a year ago, um, a lot of the student activism that we're seeing now was really catalyzed by what was happening in Ferguson a year ago, uh, and students students here on campus at in Columbia were an integral part of. Columbia, the entire town's 
response, be them protest, uh, organi- uh, organizing, demonstrations, what have you, the students were a very integral part of that. And one of the things that happened out of that student activism that was happening and student organizing that was happening were threats, you know, threats uh, directed towards black students made over Yik Yak, which is something that repeated itself again this year. Um, but it wasn't new. I, I found out what Yik Yak was when somebody threatened to shoot all black students uh, involved in these uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations over Yik Yak a year ago. So these are, you know, th- these aren't new problems. These aren't new issues that we're seeing now. And uh, it, it, they've been simmering. They've been this. We've been moving in this direction just in recent history for the past year. Can you tell us, I mean, you, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Columbia. Jason spent a lot of time in Columbia. But Bram, you, you grew up in Columbia, is that right? I did, yeah. Yeah. T- tell, t- tell us a little bit about the town. You know what I mean? I mean, the, it's a, it's a, you know, Columbia is a company town, and University of Missouri is a company, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so a little bit, I mean, if you look at the most recent census data, Columbia is just under 110,000 people, um, about 80% white, about 11% black, um, very much segregated. I grew up, you know, one of the things, right now there are, we say there are three high schools in Columbia. When I grew up, we said there were two high schools in Columbia. That those being Rockbridge and Hickman, right? But there was a, the entire time that people said there were two high schools in Columbia, the entire time I grew up, there was a third high school uh, called Douglas that's predominantly black, uh, predominantly um, lower income. And, you know, it was just to the point that we we ignored it when we talked about the school, the high schools that were available or the high schools that were there in the Columbia School District. I mean, there's, it's, there's, uh, an intensely segregated it's an intensely segregated city or uh, the um, the concentration of uh, African Americans, the concentration of diversity it's very condensed into a single ward, which is incidentally you know basically downtown, so basically it's the same ward that the University of Missouri is in. And just to kind of chime in for the past three councilmen, even though when we're talking about Ward one here, even though that's where a lot of the African-American population lives, it still has had a white councilman up until earlier this year because it seemed like the big concern of that ward was downtown matters and the integral focus wasn't really on, you know, the African-American portion of the ward. Is that your, is that your impression as well? That It's very much my impression is that, you know, not – with this ward, in, this has been one of the most powerful wards because of the intense land grab that has been, you know, how student housing and downtown development uh, in Columbia. Um, and that that has very much been the, the driving force behind the first ward and really the driving force behind a lot of what's gone on in the Columbia City Council. And I, yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I think and even uh, Clyde Ruffin, who was recently announced, recently uh, elected, I mean, he, he still was running largely on these these same issues. It wasn't so much the racism issues and things like that, because we had, you know, keep in mind, even though we've been experiencing what we've been experiencing last week, these weren't uh, so visible and uh, even just uh, vocalized issues in Columbia like they are like they have been in Ferguson, St. Louis area in the last year. Um, as Bram said, there'd been some remnants of it. We'd had a, a number of protests here, and a lot of the students at the University of Missouri uh, took part in some of the things that were happening in Ferguson last year. Um, but yeah, this has definitely brought it to the forefront in ways in Columbia that it hadn't hadn't been in recent years. Yeah, my my impression of Columbia is 
is exactly what Bram said, that it was very segregated. It doesn't seem like the African-American population is at all on, at the table when it comes to city planning or administration. I don't know what the city government, the non-elected uh, demographics are, but I always got the sense that the people in charge of the, most of the departments were usually white males or white females. And it just didn't seem like a very diverse city government, either from an elected or a non-elected standpoint. And that might have been one of the reasons it just wasn't a big focus, at least outwardly. That's just my impression. I could be wrong on that, but... I can't think of any exceptions, if I'm being honest. I'm thinking through all the all the city leaders right now, and I can't think of any <laughs> other than recently elected council people, as you said. It's something to add if we want to, you know, take this out a little bit. And even if you look at what this means for schools... Um, so if you look at, if you break Columbia down by census track, we have census track 21, um, where 10% of the city's entire black population lives in a single census track. Um, they attend an elementary school called Benton Elementary School, where 51% of the students are black, 79% of students are eligible for free or reduced price lunch, and two, uh, 23% of fifth graders scored below basic in mathematics in 2014. And you can compare that to any number of census tracts. One I, I chose was uh, 12.01, not that it matters that you're going to look at the map, but this, another, uh, another census tract in the city where just 2% of the city's black population lives. It's in atten- the attendance area for a school called El- uh, Fairview Elementary School where only 12% of the student body are black, only 28% are eligible for free or reduced price, price lunch, and only 8% of fifth graders scored below basic in mathematics. And those, those are huge disparities, and we're only talking miles apart from each other. Can I, can I throw in one more disparity, if, if you don't mind, just kind of indulging me? Yeah, we've Camille and I did a bunch of reporting on um, this, you know, this idea of a school-to-prison pipeline, in particular racial disparities in student suspensions, not just in the St. Louis area, but really across the state of Missouri. And, um, you know, it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, African-American students make up about 20% of uh, students in the Columbia School District, but they received 57% of all suspensions last school year. We just talked about Columbia, the town, and its own problems with race and its racial history. How, how do you think that affects the, the situation at the University of Missouri that the town that it's in has all of these systemic racial problems to it? It's a really good question. Um, I think you kind of hit on it earlier. I think it was just this issue that was flying under the radar. I'm sure there were people that – I know there are people that it was very important to. Um, but I, it's, it's actually noteworthy that I mentioned that show we did with Mike Middleton last year. I feel like I hadn't heard anything like that on our local airwaves or read anything like that in the newspapers in recent years. And I was, I was, I was learning things I didn't know existed in our community when they were sharing stories about things that had happened to them while they, while they lived here. Um, you know, a few African-American leaders in our community. I think it's, uh, you know, I think, I don't want to go too far here, but I think, you know, in the same way that we're, 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 assessing that the university may have been turning a blind eye to some of these issues, you probably have the same thing happening in Columbia. Um, that, as you're saying, you don't have leaders making this an issue um, in a coordinated way or proposing something that could change uh, these dynamics. And so it just ends up being this thing that still exists um, that, you know, and, and I was talking with somebody about this the other day. It's not like we're in Mississippi where where the flag still flies, right, uh, officially on government buildings. It's different than that here. But that doesn't mean these things still don't exist in, in less obvious ways. Mm-hmm. And Mary Ratliff, who's president of both uh, Columbia as well as Missouri's NAACP, I mean, she calls this town Big Little Dixie. 
It's it's it's. Can I pop in here? It's funny um, when I hear people talk in in, in the St. Louis area in, in Missouri about like, well, it's not like we're in the South. I mean, I just got here from living in the South um, for the last several years, and I, I one thing I didn't expect was that. In a lot of ways, I find I see situations, and I'm reporting on situations where I have the, um, I have the, I guess, the perception that, man, I w- I was living in the South, and there were things that would happen to me in the South, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm in the South, but it's so funny how quick people are here to distance themselves from the South, as if like, um, well, we're not the South, but I tell you, like, in a lot of ways, the South, and in, in in a lot of even even racially, in some parts, are m- more progressive than here um because they've had they've had it all hang out for quite a long time you know so they you know they've had to deal with these things openly um and i'm not saying things are are better there um but i think people are are more used to the open conversations that have that have been happening for a much longer time Mm -hmm. Um, and so in some ways, yeah, it feels like their goalpost is a little bit further along than people who, um, some people here who are just like, well, you know, we don't talk about it, so it must not exist, which is exactly, yeah. <laughs> doesn't make any sense at all. Maybe that helps explain the eruption, right? I mean, that helps explain that, like, you know, why, why are these things happening in Missouri? Why is it happening in Ferguson? Why is it happening on the University of Missouri campus? Um, you know, if, if it has been this pent up thing that nobody's talking about, that maybe that explains the eruption in some ways. Yeah. You know what I wonder? It's sometimes a little, uh, you, you know, we were talking uh, before we started rolling tape that we, we were curious how your student reporters handled some of this. I mean, it, for many of them, they are, if I memory serves, most are going to be white. Um, and I think it's probably safe to assume many of them have not really openly talked to somebody they didn't know about race. How, how did they respond to this particular um, covering the story of student reporters? I don't know. Bram, you worked alongside a few of them. I'll let you start that first. I've got a few ideas, but I, I, I didn't see that. I wasn't reporting alongside them in the same way that you were out in the field. What, what did you guys see? And I know you, you guys had some reporters. Becky, you had reporters with you as well. Uh, I mean, I when, when, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I don't know if I can really address that because one of the student reporters I worked with uh, most closely on some of these stories actually is black. Um, so I had a student working alongside me who, you know, was experiencing these things. And so, like, that was a, a different experience, I think, than working with a student who was white and had no idea what was going on, how to broach the subject with topics, et cetera. Mm-hmm. One of the strange things with working with student reporters in this uh, in this case is that, you know, many of them, these are... For a lot of for a lot of our reporters, a lot of these people are their friends, or these are people who they've been involved with, mm. um, and this has been a cause that they've been. You know, one of our reporters, Becky and I, both work on the health desk, and we have a, a student who works with us part time as well. And this has been an issue. She's a, a white woman, but this has been an issue that she's been very much involved with um, before it became newsworthy, so to speak. Before we had to direct our entire newsroom's coverage to this one specific issue for an entire week. Um, so it, it's something that, more than anything, it's something that hits uh, in our newsroom. It hit quite a few of our student reporters very directly, very much where they live. Yeah, I think um, 
I think you're right, Ram. I think this is an issue that our, a lot of our students, I think maybe also helping, it's benefited by the fact that these are 20-somethings that are open to new ideas and open, open to uh, trying to understand someone else's viewpoint maybe more often than someone maybe in a different worldview. Um, so I think, I think the events last year in Ferguson um, made them address these issues. I think the fact that they had been, many of them had been covering these same stories for the last few months because we'd had demonstrations every few days on campus for quite some time. So it wasn't really a, a new thing necessarily last week for a lot of them um, but of course something of this magnitude uh, and, and as uh, as hot as everything got last week was new to a lot of them um, I think uh, I do know that for our african-american reporters um, you know we had uh, the NABJ president came to our faculty meeting last week um, kind of impromptu and basically said like hey you know I've had faculty members come up to me and and ask if I'm okay. And I was pretending like I'm okay, but I'm not because this was really something for especially our, our black students to wrestle with is how do I handle this situation where I, I clearly have, uh, you know, a, a vested interest in this story. I, uh, you know, and, and they've been also a lot of these students have also been balancing whether they should be involved in this movement or not. Um, you know, even Michaela, the student we're talking about, you know, she, we had to figure out how we can handle her reporting in our newsroom to avoid conflict of interest. My understanding, she was telling me this morning, is that Concerned Student 1950 is actually kind of a splinter group of this larger consortium she is a part of um, that was pushing some of these issues early in the semester, earlier this semester as well. So, um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting dynamic um, trying to balance all that and help these reporters figure out their way in the world amidst all these issues, because ultimately this is an historic time, right, for the university and, and could be ultimately for a lot of other places around the country as, as you see other uh, universities inspired and uh, affected by what's happening here. And so I think some of the students are cognizant of that. Uh, some of them are <laughs> never going to be cognizant of that. But um, but yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting time for them, for sure. I, I did want to touch on one thing. We only have a, a few minutes left before I would let everybody go. At the onset, a lot of you guys mentioned your distaste with a lot of the national media coverage of this situation. And I kind of joked with Tim that we had had a similar experience here in St. Louis, but probably on a much larger scale because Ferguson <laughs> lasted so much longer. And I just got to say this as a parenthetical. I didn't think that all the national media outlets did a bad or substandard job covering Ferguson. Like some of them did an exceptional job, but a lot of them, I think, grasped onto very generalizing and at times inaccurate storylines and kind of blew it up for a larger audience. And I'm just wondering if that kind of occurred over the last week when a lot of national media descended on Columbia and maybe fell into some of the same traps that we saw in Ferguson. Yeah. Bram just pointed to me because I just this morning sent an email to some of our editors at NPR about this exact situation um, because they decided not to take any stories from KBIA because we were too close to the story in their view, being a university licensee. Um, and at, at the time, we just went with that decision and said, that's fine. Uh, you know, we'll still be good friends and work with Frank Morris, who was here covering the story and all that. Um, but I, but after we gave the space of time, we looked back um, you know, ultimately, this is not like a tornado, right, where you can come in and everybody has the same amount of facts about the story and can all figure it out from there. Um, this was like this months-long, years-long hurricane, right? And so to have somebody drop in and try to follow what's happened is just an unreasonable task. Like, I think that what you're talking about, Jason, where you've got um, reporters just kind of picking these, these you know, uh, these focuses uh, or these, uh, you know, 
storylines that they think makes the most sense. That's just their shortcut to try to make sense of all this with the limited information that they have and limited context that they have. And this story was just so contextual and so nuanced that it was really hard for reporters to drop in without having uh, having that knowledge base of what's been ha- going on even for the last few months, if not the last few years. And the only thing I'd add is like uh, there have been so It's been much more than just this recent group, Concerned Student 1950, that's been addressing issues and organizing as a student group. I mean, we've had so many things going on on this campus that really all tie into the story. We had the protests and Black Lives Matter last fall. We've had this giant grad student issue where grad students were coming together over uh, health insurance subsidy issues. I mean, we've had so much student organizing that this is just a, a culmination, I think, of all these events, right, of Black Lives Matter, of the grad student, right? of um, some of the things that happened with uh, Planned Parenthood contracts all leading up to this moment where Concerned Student 1950 uh, issued their list of demands in October and Jonathan Butler, who's also been involved with some of these other groups, went on the hunger strike and things happened. Like, I mean, there's there's just been so many parts to the story that to simply say, you know, uh, during the homecoming parade, one of the students was uh, nudged by Tim Wolf's car to say that's where it began is just such a fraction of the story of what's been going on at Mizzou and how S- Mizzou students have been coming together as a force to initiate change. Yeah, there, there's kind of like the common refrain uh, in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the Nashville reporting, even some of the reporting, unfortunately, that we that came out of our newsroom as well. But there's this refrain, you know, uh, where, you know, Tim Wolf and and uh, Bowen Lofton stepped down after a series of racially charged events. And it's, you know, it's a quick, easy summary, you know, to put it at the end of a story. But it, it's very, very far from, you know, the series of the long series of uh, uh, historical events, really, mm-hmm. that led to the resignations. Yeah. In fact, Lofton, you can make the case that faculty pushed him out. That there's right. le- there, there wasn't an actual call from Concerned Student 1950 for him to resign, but there were votes of no confidence from different departments of the faculty and a letter from nine deans at key departments to the to the board of curators asking for Lofton's removal. So even just lumping him in there, uh, you know, just kind of misattributes what happened here and makes it, it's, it's more complex than A happened, so B, right? right. There, there's a lot of other things that went on here. That last line of Tim Wolf and Arbo and Lofton, you know, step down following racial incidents feels a lot like in Ferguson with all the reporting when you were putting just that tag following the August fatal shooting death of Michael Brown by police, right? They feel very similar. It was just a really simple way to explain what was happening rather than going in to the details and the depth uh, and the complexities that really made the story what it was. So I want to ask one more question before I let you all go. After the events of the past eight, nine days, do you think that the University of Missouri and Columbia will change its focus and its ways, or do you think they're just going to continue on with business as usual that was happening before the turmoil of the last few months? I think they have to be serious. Um, I mean, I, I think Mike Middleton... I think me and many of the people who have been following University of Missouri over years saw that as the obvious choice. I know I, I'm going to brag and say I moderately predicted that uh, on Monday after Wolf resigned because that was that was, he's the guy um, that has been actually seriously considering these issues from a leadership position over recent years. Now, let's see how long his interim appointment lasts, see if it's not interim. I don't know. Um, I think he he will make those kinds of changes. I know uh, <laughs> that there is going to be a push to increase that 
uh, faculty diversity. I know that's going to happen. Um, I don't know how it's going to be paid for, but I know that's going to happen. Uh, because I think that that's even though as at your guys uh, Tim and Camille, your guys reporting was uh, was very illuminating on that issue. But at the same time, I, that, that just because everybody else is doing a poor job on this, I don't think that the university I could be wrong, but I don't think the UM, UM system or at least this campus is going to take that as a reason why we don't have to address that issue and try to increase that number of uh diverse faculty members at least, but there are obviously so many other things to address. I know I've been seeing daily statements from our system president and chancellor mm -hmm. and that's about what, all the things that have been going on. That's what I was going to say as well is, you know, we're in, in our newsroom, we're all, we're all university employees. And so we're on these, you know, all faculty, all staff emails, and we're constantly getting updates from the chancellor and from the president uh, making statements about all all number of things, be it about free speech or about racial issues. Uh, and obviously, this is the direct aftermath of what happened last week. And whether that will continue remains to be seen. But there's a very concerted effort to be paying a lot more attention to this. And it's very noticeable. And I mean, I've talked to a few um, students, uh, black students in particular, that seem pretty hopeful. Uh, they had a We Are Not Afraid march last week on Wednesday following the racial threats made on Yik Yak. And I talked to some kids, or some students, excuse me, and they, um, yeah, they seem hopeful. So <laughs> let's hope that's merited. And I mean, I really hope that there's actually real substantial changes that are made. Well, I appreciate all everybody coming here to talk about this. Um, hurting five or six people into one conversation can be difficult, but I think that we did it successfully. So um, thank you all very much for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Tim on Twitter at... At Tim S. Lloyd. And you can follow Camille on Twitter at... At Corn and Potatoes. There's a good story behind that, There's too. a good There's a great story. story you can follow uh, Ryan on Twitter at... At Ryan Famuliner, F-A-M-U-L-I-N-E-R. You can follow Bram on Twitter at... B-E Sables. That's B-E-S-A-B-L-E-S. And you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at... At Becky underscore A underscore Smith. Lots of Rebecca Smiths out there. Sorry. Um, well, we, we forgive you for that. We'll but be one corn and potato. But there's one <laughs> There's corn only one, yeah. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.